0: Good evening, and welcome once again to another episode of the Friday Night Parkdale Special. I'm your host, Joyrider, coming to you live from the dollhouse in downtown Toronto with my feline co-hosts Chatty G, Silent Shay, and Floofmaster Toby. And this is episode 138. And here's G! In the late 60s, three bands emerged. Zeppelin, Sabbath, and Deep Purple. These three all represented a harder form of rock music, though there was a strong blues influence on each, Zeppelin in particular. In the early 70s, other English bands and artists took inspiration from these acts. On the one hand, as we talked about in episode 35, you had artists like David Bowie who took a thread of that, starting what would eventually become glam rock. On the other hand, there were artists like Judas Priest who gave it a more aggressive twist by removing the blues elements from the sound. And as the 70s came to a close, bands like Motorhead incorporated elements of American hardcore punk into their sound as well. This added up to a double kick on the drums and the faster speeds of hardcore as well as the complex guitar work of British metal. Let's pause our story here for a moment and take a listen to some of what we're talking about here, just to set the stage. First up from Judas Priest's 1976 album, Sad Wings of Destiny. This is Deceiver. So if that's our exemplar of the sound of new wave of British metal, this next one gives us a sense of that more punk crossover with metal. This is Motorhead's Ace of Spades.
1: This way I like Like it, 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 baby. I don't wanna live.
0: You may recall from episode 35 that as glam rock and metal collided in the early 1980s, musicians with a harder sound didn't want to be lumped in with these hair farmers and took offense to them being called metal. I'm reminded of the anecdote about Nikki Six chasing Lars Ulrich down the street in 16-inch platform boots after Lars started talking smack right after a Motley Crue performance. A name that represented and clarified the divide between glam-influenced metal and punk-influenced metal wouldn't surface until 1984 when Anthrax released their debut album which contained the track Metal Thrashing Mad. Malcolm Dome at Kerrang picked up on this word in the song title and was the first to refer to this new, faster metal as thrash metal thrash. And the more hard-edged glam rock would thus be known by the derogatory name of hair metal. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. In the late 1970s, a man from Brooklyn named John Zazula worked on Wall Street. He got drawn into a couple of investment strategies that turned out to be a scam and ended up going to jail for it. Lost his job, his first wife, pretty much everything. When he got out of jail, he lived on the streets for a while, and with the help of his second wife, Marcia, he slowly started rebuilding his life. In an effort to make ends meet, he started selling pieces from his record collection in a corner of a booth in a flea market. The booth was a record store called Rock and Roll Heaven. His collection was slightly different and was full of British metal, and the kids hadn't heard much of British medal, if any. He ended up making some connections that allowed him to special order material from the UK for the kids who would come by. And over time, he realized he might be able to make a business of it. Luckily, Marsha was in full support of this venture. He moved into his own booth and his customers started asking him to bring a Canadian band named Anvil to perform at the flea market. There was a little stage off to the side of the flea market, so they went for it. Apparently, Anvil knocked out the power to the entire flea market for a bit, but they got the power back up and the show was ultimately a success. Knowing that fans existed, were excited, and would come out and support the thing encouraged him to keep at it. Let's pause again here and take a listen to what we're talking about. Up next, one from Anvil, which is not just Canadian, they're out of Toronto. And I am sure that at some point in the early days of their career, they would have played at the Gasworks on Yonge Street when that was still around. It was the heavy metal bar in the city for a long time. But they were actually really big. They were big enough to be playing Massey Hall in 1982. In 1981, they played six days in a row at a venue in Montreal. So to get them to a flea market in New Jersey is a pretty cool story. This is Anvil's Bondage. It was around this time that someone passed Johnny Z a demo tape of a little band from the West Coast going by the name of Metallica. Don thought it was a bit rough, but it had the kind of energy he was listening for. There still hadn't been anything in the US that was similar to UK bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, and these kids could be the start of something big. So he got in touch with these Metallica kids and invited them to come and stay at his house so they could record an album. He sent them sight on scene fifteen hundred bucks. And in 1982, 1983, that was a fair bit of money, especially for a guy with two small kids by this point and a record business that he was trying to just get into the black, never mind make profits from. But They did come, and they recorded the album, and from the interviews I was listening to with Johnny Zazula, he was saying that they were pimply, out of control, hard-drinking teenagers at the time, or young adults. And he knew immediately that Dave Mustaine was going to be a problem. Which, you know, if you've heard the stories, or remember the Camp Chaos cartoons, isn't at all surprising.
1: Dave's this bad!
0: Cliff Burton, on the other hand, was apparently a sweetheart who read John's kids' bedtime stories. And if you've ever seen pictures of Cliff Burton, the idea of him reading someone a bedtime story is just heartwarming. The first album was initially supposed to be called Metal Up Your Ass, but there were concerns that it wouldn't get distribution with a title like that, so legend has it that Cliff Burton, in a fit of pique, said, why don't we just kill them all, in reference to the managers, and that ended up being the title of their first album. From Kill 'em All, this is Seek and Destroy. Mm-hmm. In addition to actually releasing albums, Megaforce Records was also acting as an American distributor for albums that were released outside of the U.S. This would end up being a staple of their catalogue over the years. And one example of that is an album by a heavy metal band called Raven out of the UK. They were actually the headliner for what was Metallica's first tour and this is from their third studio album, which was what they were touring during that period, from 1983's album All For One. This is Raven's Mind Over Metal.
1: Standing to attention waiting for his master's voice
0: sure how Johnny Z came across this next band. They were out of San Francisco, having formed in the late 60s, and actually their biggest hit came in 1968. It was a cover of the song Summertime Blues, and they wouldn't be the only band who would cover popular songs in a metal fashion over the subsequent decades. Blue Cheer had trouble staying together though. There were periods where they would lose members and go on hiatus. Then they would come back and reform and some people from the original configuration would come back, others would not. There would be some sort of friction. Some people would go, they'd go on tour, they'd record an album, shit would fall apart. It was just, it never seemed to gel 100% for them. But they ended up having an album or two on Megaforce Records, the first of which was 1984's The Beast Is Back. And from that album, this is Blue Cheer's Girl Next Door. If you read John Zazila's autobiography or listen to interviews with him, he will talk at intervals about this band that just kept bugging him. They would send him demo after demo, and he kept saying, no, I'm sorry, you're not good enough yet, but eventually they got there, and they would change the face of the sound. I'm talking about Anthrax, and it's not just because of their use of the word thrash that I am saying these things, but I'll explain that in a minute or two. From Anthrax's third album, Among the Living, this is Caught in a Mosh. <laughs> Thrax's second and third albums, a couple of the members went off to do a little side project they called the Stormtroopers of Death, shortened to SOD. Their first album was full of intentionally provocative lyrics, and a lot of people assumed that they were either racist or idiots or both. Scotty Ann has said time and time again that they didn't actually mean those things. They were just poking fun at it. And that isn't really the kind of excuse you can get away with these days, but it was a different time. And much of the other material that Anthrax put out since then has been consistently anti-racist. I would assume they were telling the truth or that they've learned since then. In either way... I'm okay with that. From S.O.D., this is Sergeant D. and the S.O.D. to say, I love that drop-tuned bass. It reminds me of the bassline in Helmet's Unsung. It makes me wonder if they were fans of S.O.D. and Anthrax. And it's also worth noting that S.O.D. is also the root of the crossover movement. If you Ever listened to Dirty Rotten Imbeciles? They had an album called Crossover. Up next, we've got one from another Canadian band, this time out of Ottawa. They formed in 1978 and named themselves for a Judas Priest song. They have been labeled one of the first speed metal bands and were also a big influence on the thrash genre. And they too ended up being on Megaforce for a time from Exciter. This is the song Violence and Force. If you couldn't tell by the lyrics, this is the kind of stuff that would have absolutely freaked Tipper Gore out. Exciter's lyrics frequently contained satanic references, mostly just to piss people off. There must be something about bands whose names are three words that typically get shortened to three letters. S.O.D. D.R.I. D.O.A. B.F.G.? an M.O.D. M.O.D., also known as Method of Destruction, was also on Megaforce for a while, and they had similar elements to Anthrax and Stormtroopers of Death, and this from their album USA for M.O.D. is Man of Your Dreams. (laughs) Megaforce was out of New Jersey, a lot of bands out of that area got picked up a lot more quickly than they might have otherwise. TT Quick is another one that probably falls into that category. They were a bar band for a fair amount of time, and Zazula found out about them, ended up signing them, and their most well-known album is from 1986. It's called Metal of Honor. From that album, this is T.T. Quick's Hard as a Rock. the issues that would plague Megaforce over the years was that John would find bands and sign them and get them to a point where they were about to break through in the mainstream, and then another larger label who could offer them more money would scoop them up, and they would leave Megaforce behind. This happened with Metallica, as well as with this next band. Overkill formed in 1980 and they've had almost two dozen albums in their time together. The song that we're going to listen to is from their second album called Taking Over which came out in 1987 and it was the last one on Megaforce before Atlantic came along and scooped them up. From Overkill this is Use Your Head. Testament is one of those bands that I am confused as to how in the world I could have missed them. Given that I was into this kind of stuff during this period of time, I, I don't know. I remember seeing guys wearing Testament t-shirts and for some reason it just sort of skimmed over the surface of my consciousness. From their first album, The Legacy, which is actually the name that they went by prior to 1987. This is Testaments Over the Wall. Running a metal label in the 80s, it would be almost impossible to not have even a little hair metal show up. This next act, Prophet, covers that part of the bill. Out of New Jersey, Prophet did what was termed melodic rock, but really, it sounds like the kind of thing that would be in the montage scene of a ski movie with the mean kids picking on the underdogs but then somehow the underdogs triumph because it's the 80s and they have a montage with kick-ass music. This is Prophet's Frontline. Toward the late 80s, as metal began to fall out of favor and sounds like grunge started to emerge, Megaforce started branching out a little bit, picking up more acts that weren't strictly metal. And Bad Brains fit the bill perfectly. They had a more punk sound, but in addition they also incorporated elements of reggae and funk into their music. From the EP Build a Nation, this is the title track by Bad Brains, Build a Nation. is similar to Bad Brains in that they cross a few genres and fuse them together. Although the members got together in 1979, they didn't actually begin to perform under the name King's X until 1985. And they've been accused of being a Christian rock band because their lyrics frequently focus on struggles with religious themes. But band members would contest that assertion. From King's X and their 1989 album, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. This is over my head. About 1986, in the Bay Area of San Francisco, a band formed called Violence, Vio-Lens, and they got picked up by Megaforce for their second album, which was released in 1990. There was a track on it called Torture Tactics, and the label Atlantic ended up having all of the copies, 20,000 of them, destroyed because of Atlantic's objection to the lyrical content. That being said, if you manage to find the Japanese version or one of the re-releases, those will have the song Torture Tactics on it. From the album that it was originally on, which was Oppressing the Masses, this is Violence's Oppressing the Masses. This next artist's collaboration led to another collaboration, which led to Ministry being on Megaforce. The Revolting Cox was a side project featuring Al Jorgensen of Ministry, as well as Phil Do-Owen, who was the Skate Niggs lead singer. The Skate Nigs are a punk industrial band, and they ended up being produced by Jorgensen himself on their first single, as well as their first full album, which was released on Megaforce Records. That initial single, which was released on Wax Tracks, also ended up being on that first album from 1992. This is the Skate Nigs' Chemical Imbalance.
1: Knife in my back. Back, 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 back. I like to take my buddies, twisting the knife in my back. Back, 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 back. Trouble doesn't find me. I find it. Ah. People wanna make some. Don't take shit. I don't take. I'm only sorry when I am gone. The mouth is foaming from the vicious attack. The satisfaction of a rabbit back. Cockroaches, determined to survive. Microwave me, what become alive? My world. world, dystopia with the blind I see all. I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Suffer for me, listen for you. To story
0: If you're familiar with Ministry and Revolting Cox, you can see how Al Jorgensen would have been drawn to them and how they would have been a good fit on the Revolting Cox tour. They also make me think of mindless self-indulgence. And it sounds like they folded in a little KMFDM there as well. Up next, a band out of Portland, Oregon, that also spent some time on Megaforce from Sweaty Nipples' 1993 debut album. This is the instrumental piece, Zipperfish. band that we're going to look at has a really interesting gimmick. Their shtick at the outset, in the late 90s, early aughts, was that they had moved to Japan to be huge rock stars, but the company went out of business, and they were then stranded in Japan for 20 years. And while they were stuck there, their demos were essentially stolen and re-recorded by other bands like Dio and Crocus and Iron Maiden, who then became successful on the back of their work. Going back to what I was saying at the top of the show about how Blue Cheer was not the only metal act to cover popular songs, that was the primary basis for Fozzie's career for at least the first Five years of it. After that, they dropped the backstory and released original material. From Fozzie, this is their cover of Dio's Stand Up and Shout. <laughs> In the mid Ministry also found themselves on Megaforce, which isn't entirely surprising given that they were involved with the Skatniks. Ministry had three albums that were parts to their anti-Bush trilogy. There was Houses of the Mole in 2004, Rio Grande Blood in 2006, which is a play on a ZZ Top album, and then finally the last sucker. From the album Rio Grande Blood, this is Ministries. Fear is big business. Living Color had been around for quite a while. It wasn't until 2009 that they ended up on Megaforce. The album that they released on that label was titled The Chair in the Doorway, and from that album, which came out in 2009, this is Living Color's The Chair. Next up, we've got one from Mushroom Head out of Cleveland. This from their album Savior Sorrow is titled Simple Survival. The shadow. The last song for the night comes from Skid Row, who reformed after many years with a different lead singer. Yep, Sebastian Bach did not want to be involved or they did not want him to be involved. Either way, not part of it. When they did reform, they put together an album called The Gang's All Here. And this is one of the tracks from that album. This from Skid Row is World on Fire. our show for tonight. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to have you share some of your week with me. If you'd like to support the show, go to thefnps.com all the social media links are at the top right of the page, including my coffee link and the show's Patreon link. Patrons get access to my scratch pad, as well as the show's calendar, early notice of bonus shows, and some fun merch. Whether short-term or long-term support, your coins help me pay for hosting, streaming, and new tunes to keep the show both on the air and fresh. There's also a suggestion box on the website, so if you have show ideas, drop them in there. I look forward to hearing them. As always, be well and stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one.